Writers have more stories to tell than those that are written on a page. Join me as I talk about my life, loves and inspiration behind my work so far and maybe even a sneak peek into stories yet to come. Hi, I'm Chris Tetrault-Blay and this is Dead Men Talk. Hi everyone and thank you for joining me on what is officially the start of season two on Dead Men Talk. Um, hope you had a great summer. Um, hope you enjoyed the summer drop-in sessions that I I put out um, over the, the course of the summer. If you haven't, go back, check them out. Um, I had some I had opportunities to have some great guests on. So thank you again to Chuck Chapman, to Linda Robson Burrell, to Ray Rumsey and to Andrew Hess. Um, it was great to sort of step out of the realms of talking about my work for a little bit to welcome others on to talk about theirs. And uh, yeah, I've got another um, another bonus interview yet to come that I will drop um, probably in the middle of, of a couple of episodes here early on in season two. Um, yeah, I, I was aiming to have the summer off. It doesn't really feel like I've been away, oddly enough. So, uh, you know, it's great great to be back. Great to be able to to carry on talking about my writing journey. Um, and season two, as I have mentioned a couple of times in a couple of previous sort of episodes, season two will be looking at A Necessary End, which is my anthology um it was the first title i released under dead men's tales publishing last year um it's actually made up of two books that i had previously released um that i had taken i basically lifted much of the content from both of those put them together repackaged them under a, a new title with a new backstory i will be talking about each of the individual stories um how I tied them together, why I did what I did, what the inspirations were behind each of them. So that's going to be the the sort of main structure of season two is just to really dissect the book because it's not just one story. It's made up, I think, of about seven or eight different stories, uh, like I say, tied together with with one main sort of narrative that's been told behind it. Um, and it all really started way back at the beginning for me which um i was i was wondering i was trying to decide how best to to really uh, to attack this i could i could go just through the book as it is go through each individual story as it lies in there but the timeline would be really quite erratic because i, I didn't as it's as it exists as a necessary end exists at the moment is not by any means in the order that I wrote it or, or anything. So I, I prefer to go back and because I'm just trying to sort of document uh, my journey as a writer, I thought the best way to do it would be to do it in chronological order. So go right back to the beginning and where the kernels for this book first began. And it was actually right back 2015. So the first year that I was published, um, the, the first part of this book that came about and was actually written a matter of weeks, maybe a month or so after Acolyte 
my debut novel was actually released. So I was fresh off of the idea of finally being a published author. Um, I knew with Acolyte that I was I was going to work on a trilogy that I needed to expand that. But sort of in between, I, I, I wanted to just let my imagination kind of run free and explore the the creepier recesses I suppose of of my psyche um I just I just saw it as a bit of a blank page I was like I, I what would I like to write about let's let's try and get the creepiest thoughts I can and and sort of see if I can turn them into a story so the first one that I'll discuss today is the first story that came about um from what would become House of Courtney and eventually Necessary End and this one is probably the story that I get the most feedback on and it's the one that really from that feedback makes me proud that I, I have I've done my job as a, a horror author because this is the one that really seems to resonate with people um, and I think that the beauty of it that I'll get to discuss in a little more detail is that I I drew on a real fear that I had which I think is quite important in order to resonate with readers of horror you probably got to write with a lot of people anyway you probably got to write something that that strikes a chord with them that, that gives them that real sense of fear um, so just to introduce it the first episode the first story that came about is Umidia. Um, a lot of people out there who have probably read either Necessary End or House of Courtney will know immediately um, which story this is and what it's about. I won't dissect it to a degree that I, I try and spoil anything for anyone who wants to read it. I really, out of all of them, I think this is one of two stories in this book that I'm so immensely proud of that I really do want people to be able to read it without too much preconception of what it's about so that the the impact is still there but um, Umidia draws on my own fear growing up of spiders so many of you out there may well um, may well understand you know where I'm coming from this this kind of real it wasn't to a degree of being a phobia I, I I did have quite a real fear growing up of being near spiders um, whenever I saw them especially growing up in Basingstoke um, anyone who knows the area knows the sort of the legends whatever attached to Basing what we call Basingstoke spiders they are massive house spiders and it seems to be that they are a lot bigger um, in Basingstoke than a lot of other places not sure why but um so we had some pretty beefy ones come into the house and there's one occasion that I remember quite vividly sat on the floor in the lounge and unbeknownst to me this massive house spider had crawled up and pretty much was was close to sort of touching my leg um before I noticed him and I, I freaked out and f I think it was really from that moment on the sight of them was enough to 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 creep me out um i found one i was as my mum would probably detest i was quite untidy 
as a child um, under my bed I used to just shove everything from the floor when I was tidying my bedroom it just all used to get shoved under the bed and one day it got so bad that I actually had a spider that I um, that had got into one of those like plastic poly wallet things you know these document wallets that you, you put in you know binders and everything I had a bunch of those under me under my bed and I just happened to look under my bed and there was a massive spider got into one of those and was trying to get out and that was it for me um, I did try then to keep my bedroom as clean as possible just to, I even used that that today with my daughter because her um, untidiness is probably on par with the mine or her mum's and um, I I use that kind of inspiration I think you know you don't want to end up like daddy did you don't want to end up with spiders under your bed and it seems to work so, so so going to 2015 I had got first book out there in my head I was part of me was like thinking yeah you know I'm a published author now you know this is big I'm 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 gonna be a big name <laughs> you know and the other part of me was how do I follow that um, I knew that I there was more to come because I knew that Acolyte would be part of a trilogy as I've said but I, I wanted something that I first of all I could just write for myself I was still exploring the process of writing and really exploring the ideas that were going around my head and how I could turn them into you know words on a page that people may want to read so I cannot think apart from the fact that I had this um, aversion to spiders um, I can't really pinpoint the reason why I decided to to write this book except for I think I really wanted to I, I was quite um, I found old sort of b-horror movies quite impactful and I think I wanted to write something that, that sort of gave readers and myself that that sort of cold feeling you know that creepy kind of feeling uh, the same as I used to get when I used to watch these films and um, and I, I think at the time I also thought of it as therapy I thought you know one way to cope with spiders is how about I write a story about spiders but I will make it I, I'll amplify it and I'll touch on this a bit more and I'll, I'll, I'll make it into probably one of the most um, not impossible but you know unlikely stories you know makes it more manageable you know if you if you if you take a fear and you can either laugh at it or you you blow it up so that it's so big literally that it's going to be unreal then i think you you start to be able to cope with it a lot better and that, that's what happened with me when i was writing this book on a few occasions some of the larger house spiders have been brave enough to get close enough to touch his leg or arm before he noticed after which the panic would take hold. He couldn't move or breathe at the sight of them. His fear eventually turned to a morbid fascination. He wanted to understand the creatures that evoked such a physical and emotional response from him in the hope that one day he could quell such fear. Curiosity soon evolved, degenerated into an obsession. He would still feel his heart try to break from his chest whenever he saw a spider of any size, but he was amazed by those that he knew little of. The ones that grow to the size of puppies, if the internet news stories could be believed. 
Fear and excitement began to flow together in equal quantity until he barely recognized one emotion from the other, as was still the case. So, going back to the the movies that inspired it, um, there are four in particular that that were in this vein of the the big monster spider movies. And the first one that I remember seeing was Eight Legged Freaks. So back in I think the early two thousands, um, I remember going to the cinema. Can't remember if it was in Newton Adderall or whether it was while I was at uni. I, I can't can't think. I'm pretty sure I went with my wife before we got married. We um, went to see Eight Legged Freaks, and it was I, I watched Arachnophobia when I was younger, but that one I think is creep on a whole new level because those spiders are normal size, um, in normal places. Um, that could happen, so I think I still probably treat that that film with a little more sort of, um, I'm a bit more wary of that one. But Eight Legged Freaks, as uh, if you're not familiar with it, um, it's it's your typical chemical spillage kind of um, interfering with nature in a small town in America um, there's a spider farm near where the authorities um, are dumping radioactive waste and there you go, you can see what happens so they, they end up growing to completely disproportionate sizes and start running havoc around the town and start killing people basically they start the, the, the spiders start preying on the humans and that thought alone for anyone who has any kind of um, aversion to spiders is is yeah quite freaky um, I love the film the film is is it is what it is it's not a horror film it's quite creepy in places, but it's funny. It's I think it's meant to be a sort of a spoof comedy, really. Um, but there's a, a couple of scenes in that that really did stick with me. And going on from that, when I was at uni, um, I we had a a great um, place in town in Hanley, Stoke-on-Trent. It used to be called Another World, and I, th I believe it's now Forbidden Planet. Um, used to go there in the early days of when I first got my my first DVD player, and we used to buy uh, any kind of horror that we could lay our hands on. And I remember picking up two DVDs, budget DVD. I think they were only like sort of ninety nine p or one ninety nine or something at the time, called Spiders, and the aptly titled sequel Spiders Two. And I, if you anyone who again isn't familiar with these if you try and google spiders 2000 movie or hollywood dvd spiders it's around about 2000 it was released i think you'll find these films and they are on par i think with things like today sharknado and that kind of thing but the cgi the, the cgi was bad but they also had it's like animatronic massive animatronic spiders in it which were also pretty bad but they did make it feel a little more real a little bit like Jaws did I suppose in the day and again we laughed at it when we were watching them because the acting was bad the effects were bad the story was awful but the creep factor was still there because in the back of your head it's like that's a spider you know I, I don't like them when they're you know tiny um, heaven help me that I ever come across one that's about 10 feet tall or something you know 
so it really and and seeing the seeing the roles reverse seeing the spiders that were killing and eating people really um really upped that fear factor and going back a time even further tarantula the original in my eyes the original monster b movie um i think it's from the 1950s or so and i remember when i was when i was little i don't know what book it was or magazine or whatever it was one about movies and there was a feature in there about old monster movies and there was a picture of this guy in a room and in the in the other corner opposite him is this black mass which was a spider and being that age i don't know how old i was probably in about eight or ten or something i wasn't sure if that was real or not <laughs> so it's laughable look back on it now um but at the time i i had to tell myself it wasn't real because part of me thought that it could be you know i thought it was an act i didn't know it was from a film i thought it was an actual photograph of of this guy opposite this absolutely massive spider so growing up with those images and with those movies around and sort of by the time 2015 rolled around and i was wanting to write something acolyte and the world of apocalypse i think i said for me didn't have the creep factor that comes with um guys like james herbert um i suppose lovecraft is in there as well and all these b horror movies they're not visibly gory but they they just had that 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 real kind of i keep calling it the creep factor it's 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 it's, it's having that sense of realism in there um something could happen it's so you know it's so far out there but it's it's something that plays on your mind that you know there is a possibility one day this could happen i don't feel the world of apocalypse had that um that to me was it was more supernatural it was more drifting off probably into i don't know some stephen king or clive barker kind of universe but um when i was right when i wanted to write this this other story and the beautiful thing about this it didn't belong to anything at this point i didn't have to write something that was a struggle i think with the trilogy especially in the early stages is the acolyte was very organic it kind of came from whatever i was thinking or feeling at the time i knew then i had to carry that story on and had to have some relevance back to what happened in acolyte when i started writing omidia it didn't belong to anything else it didn't have to tie in with anything else it was just me exploring that dark part of my imagination where i could write something that hopefully would have that some kind of impact on someone so at the time it was it was going to be a short story um i I was really desperate to write some short stories that i could put into competitions that i could send off for publications or you know magazines or whatever um as i started writing it though the 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 story pretty much wrote wrote itself like a lot of house of courtney did at the time and i just kind of went with it in the end it ended up being about eight ten thousand words and i knew it was too big to put out as a short story but i didn't want to trim it down because i thought it told it told a great story so just to give you the background of the story um the main character is a guy called Ryan Courtney and I changed his name 
once I decided on the name on the on the title House of Courtney for the for the whole piece, he he wasn't actually a Courtney. The Courtney family didn't wasn't really factored in at this early stage. But by the time the book was released, um, he his surname was changed to Courtney. So Ryan Courtney starts off seeming like a a normal kind of sort of mid twenties kind of guy. He's coming back. The first scene sees him at an airport, traveling back from Charlotte, North Carolina, in America, back to the UK. And he is nervous. He's got something in his backpack that he knows he shouldn't have. And it's he's fearful of cover being blown when he's checking in for his flight, basically. And there's no real mention of what it is to begin with I wanted that kind of you know to build up to it again I'm not going to give too many details away because this is one story I'd like people to really discover for themselves I'll, I'll let you know the nature of it because obviously I I need to give some background on it for the purpose of this episode but I I will refrain from going too far but um but yeah so he he has he's indulged in something that the whole purpose I'll the whole purpose for this story looking back on it was I wanted to take a fear as I've said a real fear and it was a fear of mine growing up it's still yeah I can I can tolerate spiders a lot more now than I used to but um I had I had this this fear of spiders and I thought if it's a real fear at what point can that fear become so much that it becomes something else that you can almost become obsessed with this fear and it overtakes you not to the point that you can't function around whatever um, being whatever object it is that you're you're fearful of but much like when I wrote this story I had an idea of the kind of spider that I wanted to use and again that comes from one of the scenes in Eight-Legged Freaks one of the most powerful scenes for me is the ostrich farm scene and that is to my knowledge the first point at which you you get a hint of the trapdoor spider um and i think is it the ostrich i can't think there is another scene actually no it might be the other, another one where it's the first one where the spiders are really sort of breaking out into the town and it might be a car park or something i'm not sure there's people running through a car park or whatever it is and they just start disappearing. These spiders just start jumping from the ground and just grabbing them and going back under the ground. That, to me, was one of the... It had that that real shock factor that I love in horror films. It's something that isn't there, it appears, it does what it needs to do, it goes, and, and all within a split second. And I thought, there's probably... Aside from size, you know, some spiders out there are a lot bigger which you could use um i could the the action the behavior of the trapdoor spider was probably the most perfect for me to use and develop within a horror story and i i coupled that with the idea of size being the shocking thing as well and and all of a sudden i had these this this to me this perfect story which gave me the creeps but I forced myself to, to to I had to cope with the idea of writing about a spider um, by researching it. So I had to look at pictures. I had to read 
detailed descriptions of their behaviors and and it was it was difficult to begin with especially with the pictures because they're not a nice looking spider really um you get some which you can say are quite beautiful in a way you know they're, they're, they're quite remarkable looking um when you see if you google amidia or trapdoor spider um yeah then they're, they're not very they're not very pretty but again that was perfect for using because the way you describe this again I, at one point i describe it as a black hole a black mass because that's really what it would resemble and i i was kind of putting my, trying to put myself in ryan courtney's shoes you've you've committed this you, you've you've gone on like a thrill-seeking mission to either to, to overcome your own fear but to prove to yourself that you you can do something that other people probably wouldn't expect you to do so he smuggles a um trapdoor spider from this is probably the biggest spoiler i'll give away he smuggles a trapdoor spider from its burrow in america back to the uk um he has you get a sense that he has this fear of them but he at the same time appreciates them and he wants to learn more and that overcomes him that really it takes over him eventually and this you get the sense that this spider in the end is, is, is like has some hold over him has some control over him and that, that's about as far as I'll go with, with the actual sort of plot in, in that um, in that sense but the, the the writing about it for me was it was some form of therapy it was helping me cope with this fear of even seeing pictures of spiders you know let, let's look at what i would class as one of the 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 uglier um species and seeing what they do um you know really immerse yourself in it and then you've got to write about it you've actually got to describe it you've got to um you got to describe you got to think what the 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 most horrible thing that these things can do to you as a person you know not just you know what they usually prey on and what they you know in their normal environment you know the 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 creatures that they they would prey on and uh, and live on what would they do if they got to a point that they could do that to you that really sums up the the motive behind writing amidia it was exploring this fear it was amplifying it to a degree that we could become the victims of them um and what would happen and sort of by the end of it i i was more fascinated i i've not that i'd want to be too close to these things but i think the the bigger spiders really do fascinate me not only their size but you know they how they live um you know how they get to that side how they're different from just the ones that you see scuttling around your house you know and the feeling you get when you see a house spider out of the corner of your eye scuttle across your carpet while you sat there watching tv for example you know you compare the size wise if it's size that gets you and then you can you think that there's something out there that's probably three or four times bigger than that you know how would you feel then you know and may make me sound a bit weird but i think that again as a horror writer you need to connect with some of the the fears that you are writing about to make them more real beautiful he thought as he stared at her now and then changing his position to look at her through each side of the container marveling at her size and beauty the spider was easily 20 to 22 centimeters in length 
the largest he had seen to date. Her body was thick and black, her legs drawn up towards the center of her body, making the corner of the box resemble nothing more than a black hole. She was quick, too. Ryan moved no more than an inch closer to the box and she advanced within a split second until her underside was bared against the front wall of the box, supported by her slender legs on either side. So yes, Umidia is based on an actual phobia, fear that a lot of people have. I think that's one of the reasons why it connects with a lot of people. And um, But at the same time, I really, this, this story is, a, is an homage to the the monster bee movies that that i still love so spiders eight-legged freaks tarantula which i finally got on dvd recently i really need to watch it again um so yeah it, it was really given that that kind of story and to me it was it was so refreshing this was this was the only the second story i wrote and it's probably like i say one of two that i go back to as if I was going to be asked for a true reflection of my writing style or what I'm most proud of I would go back to this would be one of them and the other one belonging to House of Courtney as well which is why I think for me I've got a real affinity with A Necessary End it's not you know some people prefer um, The World of More Apocalypse um, but some of them would think that my most recent stuff in Poison in the Well is probably, you know, the best stuff I've done. In terms of what I'm most proud of, I would definitely say a necessary end. Because of firstly where it started, it was it was me exploring writing, but also exp without boundaries. I was I was right I started writing this story um, without boundaries. It didn't need to belong to anything. It didn't need to be like anything. And um and yeah, and it, it's. I think writing organically like that is is the best thing. I've really struggled um, at the moment trying to develop the world of more resurrection. You know, going back to a trilogy that firstly I I thought I put to bed, then I decided I had more life in it, and there was another direction I could take it in. Um, I'm beginning to realise actually tying myself to something like that probably isn't isn't how I work best, which is ironic because. I I'm planning I am actually writing at the moment which which makes this episode even more poignant really is I am I have started writing a follow-up story to Omidia and it's not going to be a full-length novel it's not going to be probably qualify as a short story it'll be same probably same kind of mid-length that that Omidia was but I I just felt like I didn't feel like the need to carry this story on but I had I had ideas floating around which to me really suited another story really you know okay i it, it justifies me carrying it on rather than trying to force it which at times i think with the wildermore apocalypse probably best to leave it where it is but there is more to tell so i am going to continue with that um but sort of the, the nature of a necessary end being more of an anthology is that i um there's probably only one story in that that I wrote with a purpose to fit in with some of the others. Um, all the rest of them I've really just sat down and I've just written just just for the purpose of just writing. Just I had ideas, I wanted to put them down. You know, I, 
I, I would link them together later and that that is even more exciting this is where as you'll find as we go through the importance of the the narrative story that the background story that I've used in House of Courtney in Black Gang and in A Necessary End to tie the other stories together um, it wasn't an aim of mine to come out with something that resembled sort of or had a feel of uh, things like Tales from the Crypt um, like having individual stories held together by, by a single thread I think that's it's born from my love of TV series a lot like the X-Files the early series of the X-Files where you had these standalone stories but there was this vague um, thread of a story holding it all together so by the, by the end of the series they all kind of you could see how they were all connected in a way although they all stood alone as their own individual you know monster stories um i didn't set out with an aim to to make a book like that but i think that's come the end when i was putting it all together that's really where where i was inspired to to do that so um so i wrote Amidia in the summer of 2015 i think i think one of the things that probably started off at that point we at the around our back door we had quite a a family of false widow spiders set up camp around our back door and i i so a few others that probably don't understand them quite as much they they were sort of i uh, couldn't understand why i wasn't getting rid of them i, I was here and there but largely I, I let them do their thing they weren't bothering me they were keeping the flies away you know they weren't in direct you know that if they were somewhere where i would you know we would risk agitating them and they're you know bite us or whatever then i i would have moved them but you know they they weren't really harming anyone being out there and I just used used to sit there on the on the patio table and just watch them sometimes and there was you could see there was the queen there i i i named her consuela and i think we got up to about consuela the third or the fourth um a couple of times i did have to move her on um and and then there was a replacement that came in but um she was she was quite big really the the queens it amazed me really how how the the, the queens of the spider world can get so much bigger than the uh, than the males but um the what i'll put up as a a picture for the podcast art for this episode is actually a um it's a cover that my wife marie actually came up with on her phone i one of us took a picture of this this queen this uh, consuela um false widow spider that was hanging in our doorway and it captured it perfectly she captured the the, the picture of the spider but also the the sh her shadow behind which actually then looked like there was multiple of them when it came out in the picture and she she played around with it and she came up with this great cover that i used when i put the i put it up as a short story on my blog at the time on my website that i had back then um it was a free giveaway before i'd even really knew what to do with it putting it into a book or anything so i used it there and i've had to go hunting for it since uh, it, was, it was a great great uh sort of b-movie style horror poster kind of thing so I'll, I'll i'll put that up but um yeah so i think it was it was it was having them around as well uh really got me thinking about um that there is a scene in the book where the again not giving too much away this spider is, is living out in the garden 
and I had these images of you know what would happen if I you know throwing scraps of food out for the birds or something and and there was actually a spider living in my lawn or whatever you know it's things like that um so this isn't one that's got a lot of personal experience built into it except for my like I say my early fear of spiders I suppose and these these thoughts that went through my head eventually like what would happen if we had this kind of spider here what would happen if they grew to this kind of size you know and I kind of ran with it so uh so yeah um if you are if you've read the story before I'd love to hear your comments again there are a few fellow authors out there that have commented on it and I really do value their comments that they made because knowing that this story alone had struck a chord with them you know um I still hold that as a uh, it's inspiration it's, it's it's validation that I at some point I do know what I'm doing you know there are times that I I do doubt the quality of the stuff that I'm coming up with but uh but this one the media in particular it's the first time that i let my imagination really run free without any kind of boundaries or limitations and drawing on what i love from the horror genre you know i'm a big lover of monster films big creature films and um and stories as well so take steve alton's meg series not strictly horror necessarily um but it's it's those big monster, big creature um, stories, and this was mine. This this was my contribution to that world, I suppose. He told himself that Magnus had belonged to the spider the moment that she had bitten him. He was her prey, and she had won. The stiffened body that lay before him that afternoon on the chopping board was merely meat, just another parcel he could have picked up from the local butchers. The spider had accepted the offerings of Magnus's body gratefully and urgently. Ryan had started small, offering her scrapings of the flesh, complete with the stubborn strands of fur. But after the first day, he and she became braver, and it ended with Ryan offering complete legs, and at the very end, Magnus's head. Ryan had been right, too. She was growing every day. And that is really where House of Courtney started, sort of out of nowhere, with this story that I I put together probably only over a couple of a week couple of weeks or so, and from there I I then like I said I put it out as a freebie. I didn't know what to do with it. I I was just proud that I had managed to to do something. It was a, more like a training exercise for me at the time. It was it was sort of keeping me in the re- in the in the writing. Um, mode so that I could then start writing on the sequel to Acolyte that was the the aim behind it but I think what started to come out of this process is my love for um series right for, for anthology writing and and I've still I've, I've only really got this one to my name but it's taken form over like two or three books so far before I've, I've sort of put it together last year as a necessary end um and this is where I'm most comfortable. It's really just exploring the creepiness, um, stuff that 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 makes me tick, that gets my, you know, my my hair standing on end and and that kind of thing. So you know, if it happens to me, hopefully there's people out there that react the same way. 
So yeah, that's enough of me prattling on about this book, uh, about this story. This is, it's, it's, like I say, it, it will, this was only the start of what became a necessary end. So we will find out more about where I went after that. The, this is why this series is really going to be, I've been re- so excited about starting to record this series in particular because I know I had there were influences and in that that I discussed behind the world of more apocalypse but a necessary end what is in there there are so many different influences there that I can now discuss and I think a lot of them will probably come as a surprise there are some odd ones in there that probably people wouldn't have imagined would lead to a, a horror story of any kind um, but there's so many in there. There's like, like I say, seven or eight stories I, I get to talk about, and there are specific inspirations behind each one. And I'm I'm so glad I've got this platform to be able to talk um, talk about them. So I hope you'll enjoy season two. I certainly will. This is probably going to be an absolute blast for me to do. Um, not just because I get to talk about my work, but again because I I love delving into the history behind things and this is this is it for me this is um this is the product where there's the most to talk about so apologies if i prattle on a little bit like i have on this one but um yeah if you haven't read Omidia yet then grab your copy of a necessary end um it's available on kindle and in paperback still at the moment um have a read um it's where is it was at the beginning of House of Courtney it's, it's probably about halfway through a necessary end so grab your copy of a necessary end and you know read through it but when you get to Amidia just yeah um, hopefully I've not given too much away but if you if you are like me uh, you don't like spiders or you have an appreciation but want to stay as far away from them as possible hopefully you'll really enjoy this and you'll get that sort of chill feeling like I am hoping people will get from reading it so join me um, on the next episode now the next episode may be a little longer it's the one I think where I apologies in advance if I really do get into it because in the next one the, the next part of a necessary end that came together that again went into House of Courtney to begin with was the Tricker Jack and anyone that knows me knows again how how proud I am of that body of work and he, he has he's developed since then he, he's got a lot more of a story to him than any of my other characters I think so I uh, I get to talk about him it's really that first story i'm going to take this as chronologically as i can but with the tricker jack he has got sort of two or three of the stories in the necessary end that are related to him so i'll see where i go because i may end up sort of lumping them all together in that one episode or i'll try if i can to keep it as a more of a timeline thing but uh, yeah thank you for listening um thank you for joining me back for uh, for this the start of series two really hope you do enjoy uh, the rest of the series and go back and listen to some of the other episodes from last series and from the, the summer drop-in if you haven't already um, remember to to like share if you're 
podcast platform you're listening to this on allows you to leave ratings or reviews please do you know stick a star rating on there stick a a few words of a review on there it all helps um to grow this episode uh, to grow this podcast and you know get it out there to a wider audience so uh thank you so much and i will speak to you again next week The sound samples used in this episode are from the audiobook version of A Necessary End, narrated by Dave Jackson, and is available for download on Audible and Amazon. If you like what you hear, and if you've enjoyed this episode, please do check out the audiobook, as well as the ebook and paperback copies of A Necessary End, also available through Amazon and all good bookstores online. Mm-hmm.